Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation to any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. The views and opinions contained herein are those of the individuals to whom they are attributed to. It may not necessarily represent views expressed or reflected in other Schroeder's communications, strategies, or funds. Hi everyone, and welcome back to TVP. This week we're joined by Ben Inker from GMO, where he's the co-head of Asset Allocation. He joined the firm right after graduation from college in 1992 and has worked very closely with finance legend Jeremy Grantham. He's also an active contributor to GMO's extensive research library. We'd like to thank Robert Hunter for introducing us to Ben. Robert organizes the London Value Investor Conference each year, which we suspect fans of this pod would be interested in. This year's conference is coming up on the 18th of May, and Ben will be speaking. Juan and Andy Williams sat down with Ben to discuss his experiences working closely with Jeremy Grantham and James Montier, answering the question, is mean reversion dead? How to help clients break from old habits and move into the uncomfortable? Where he thinks value is in today's cycle, and the difference between value and growth traps. Enjoy. Ben Inker, welcome to the Value Perspective Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. How are you? I am good. Thanks very much for having me. Where do we find you today? Uh, well, I am in our offices in Boston. Uh, this will be one of the f- last few times I'm in this office. After 35 years in the in the same building, we are moving uh, in April uh, to a new building, slightly higher above sea level. Right now, we are exactly one foot above sea level, which is getting uh, increasingly <laughs> uncomfortable. Uh, so this will be one of my last uh, hurrahs in, in the office I've been in for 31 years. Oh, wow. That's very exciting. For those that are not aware of who you are, and I don't think that many value investment or investor listeners wouldn't know who you are. Can you provide us with a little bit of an introduction about yourself and about GMO? Sure. Uh, GMO is uh, an institutional investment manager uh, founded in 77. We manage uh, stocks, bonds, multi-asset and alternatives. My job at GMO, I've, I've been here a long time, 31 years. I co-head our asset allocation group. Uh, so my team is responsible for figuring out what kinds of stocks and bonds around the world we want to be investing in. Uh, and over my career, I've been kind of a, a direct equity analyst and portfolio manager, uh, PM for uh stock portfolios, multi-asset portfolios, hedge funds, and uh, have a, as a firm, we tend to have a very strong valuation bias. That doesn't mean everything we do is traditional value stocks, but we have this very strong belief that the return you are going to get from any asset is going to be driven by its valuation. 
and so that that underlying philosophical premise drives certainly everything that my team does and and much of what happens across GMO. You will correct me if I'm wrong, but you started working at GMO straight out of college. Is that correct? Uh, yes. Yes, I did. I, I started as a research analyst working for Jeremy Grantham. Uh, he had never had uh, a dedicated research analyst before and wasn't entirely sure what he was going to do with me, but I was foisted upon him and it uh, it wound up working all right in the end. So Jeremy is a very big name in finance circles and he has been for a very long time. How is it working with Jeremy Grantham? I mean, it has been... Uh, extraordinary uh getting to learn from one of the real innovators and original thinkers in investing for 30 years has been great uh it can be a little bit intimidating dealing with someone whose historical knowledge is as acute as his is he will both remember things that i said to him you know 15 or 25 years ago, but also <laughs> will remember, oh, you know, if I think back at what was happening in 1973, you know, we bought, I don't know, uh, you know, Erie Lake and Dredge at this price and it moved to this price and here's what we were thinking. So it's it can be a little bit terrifying thinking about uh, how how much he can recall of the last 50 years of investing. But he's been an, an astonishing person to be able to learn from. Jeremy is quite famous because he has called on some of the greatest bubbles in financial markets over the course of the last 30 years. And I guess the question would be, why does he talk so much about, or why is he perceived to be trying to time the market? Well, yeah, it's an interesting thing. I, I think actually much of the time his he would say, you don't want to bother trying to time the market. Most of the time, show up, do your work, uh, do you know diligent security analysis, uh, and stay out of trouble. Um, but in over the course of his career, what he has noted is periodically something, Sufficiently extraordinary will go on in the markets as to have the potential to kind of wash away um, the benefits of coming in, doing your job day by day. Uh, and when markets get to crazy prices, that's predominantly where extraordinarily losses come from. Uh, so you know his his focus on this certainly predates my coming to uh coming to GMO and kind of the first great bubble that we experienced a lot of pain and then a lot of benefit from having avoided uh was the Japan bubble in in the late 80s but what we realized from that and what he realized from that is markets are capable of moving to prices that seem utterly impossible ahead of time. Who would have believed that a stock market that had never traded above 25 times earnings would move to 65 times earnings? And then from those levels, uh, 
the single important thing is to make sure to avoid that, right? You could have been doing diligent security analysis within Japan from 1989 <laughs> to 2009, and you might have outperformed Japan, but you wouldn't have made anybody any money. Mm. Um, and so avoiding those kind of oncoming tidal waves is something that, that Jeremy spends a lot of time thinking about, but those kinds of bubbles don't occur that often. Uh, honestly, I would say in the last 20 odd years, they have come around more often than we would have guessed, mm -hmm. uh, but still, they're not very frequent. But when they occur, it's important for people to be aware. And so he gets loud uh, when, he's, <laughs> when he sees uh, the evidence that a bubble has formed. Here in the Value Team, we are big followers of the very generous research that you guys uh, make public. And I can't pass on the opportunity of, or let me rephrase that, a colleague of mine, Andy Evans, asked me to ask you, how is it to work with James Montier? <laughs> James <laughs> is a, a very interesting character. Um, and uh, it can be a lot of fun working with him because over the years he has looked at so many different problems. Uh, and so no matter what is going on from a research standpoint, the nice thing is, you know, you can call up James and ask, hey, we're trying to figure out how to think about European insurers given what's gone on. It's like, oh yeah, well, here's how I think about insurers. I spent a lot of time on that when I was in Hong Kong in the late 90s. We built this model. Here's how I think about how that works. And that's really cool. Uh, <laughs> on the other hand, uh, it can be a little bit frustrating dealing with James because he has some very strongly held views about what matters and what doesn't matter. And if you are interested in a topic which he is adamant doesn't matter, he's just going to tell you, well, that doesn't matter. That is a stupid question. You should not be asking me that question. Um, and But he's, he, I mean, among other things, he is an incredibly engaging uh, guy and an extraordinary speaker. So I just always love the chance to get to hear him uh, present. And, and frankly, I always enjoy the chance to to uh, just uh, call him up and, and have a chat about kind of the, the topic we are grappling with uh, from an investment standpoint. Evan, that's actually an amazing segue into, into, into a question I really wanted to ask you. And if I actually think back to the genesis of this podcast was about decision making in uncertain environments. And something we're all really interested in, our listeners are pretty interested in is behavioral biases and how we account for those. And clearly, we have those in the markets. We also have those within investment teams. Um, and they can influence decisions. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I know that GMO's process is, is very data driven. Um, so I'm really interested to hear how you account for, for those behavioral biases that you see playing out maybe on the on the sort of broad scale in the markets, but also actually within within those investment committee meetings as well. Yeah, well, um, so some of what we do at GMO is strongly data driven. We do have we do run a number of uh, quantitative strategies. Uh, some of it is more kind of fundamental uh, side of things, but the data really matters. And the first thing I would say is the biggest problem with being data driven in investing is the data. Uh, 
a lot of the data doesn't necessarily make sense. And the first thing you need to do as a data-driven investor is turn the data into something that makes sense, right? 35 years ago, when I was first studying finance, one of the things that was, you know, widely known to be true is companies with negative book value were close to bankruptcy. Today, McDonald's has negative book value. Boeing has negative book value. Big, strong companies have negative book value because book value doesn't mean what it was supposed to mean. Um, so the first thing you need to do if you're going to be data-driven is get some economically uh, useful data. Once you've done that, and in our case, that was a product of man years of work, probably tens of man years of work. The question is, how do you build a portfolio? And how do you build a portfolio that both is reasonable given the uncertainties of the market? And then how do you build a business where you know the market is capable of being inefficient uh, for longer than the average client's uh, patience. Yeah. So there's sort of a whole level of, uh, of things that I, I think you need to do. I think the very first one is making sure to be quite diligent about updating your beliefs and valuations. I think one problem for investors is falling in love or out of love with securities or countries or styles. And for us, you know, the uh, discipline of, say, building our asset class forecasts is sometimes those asset class forecasts are telling us, you know, value stocks look expensive and are expected to underperform. And so I think having good discipline helps you avoid the problem of just assuming, well, look, uh, I loved these things a year ago. I loved them five years ago. I must still love them now. The somewhat unrelated problem of how do you run a business where you know you can be wrong uh, for a long time, um, a lot of that is about communication, uh, getting the right clients in the door to begin with, making sure they know exactly what you're doing and why. And frankly, for us, right, the reason why we publish as much research as we do is it's an efficient way for our clients to understand why we're doing what we're doing. It has the side effect of allowing other investment managers uh, to know what we're, why we're doing what we're doing, which is of mixed benefit. <laughs> but it is really important because, you know, it's not – it is not enough for an investment manager to outperform over time. Investment managers can outperform over time and still see their underlying investors in them underperform because of poor timing as to when they hire and when they fire. Uh, so one of the things we spend a lot of time on is trying to make sure we are as clear with our clients on what we're doing and why to help buy us enough time for the markets to eventually become sane. I guess a 
it's a follow-up question I'd have then would be, it sounds like the the narrative then around the data is really important. I mean, particularly as you said, GMO publish a lot of uh, a lot of uh, research publicly, but also to actually improve those client um, those actual client outcomes, so they match you know more of the the actual fund manager's performance profile. So you know, buying at the right time, selling at the right time, uh, and all those sorts of things. Do you is that something that you've thought about? very actively throughout your career is how do we tell the story with this data because it feels like gmo do that in a very um you know very well developed developed way versus versus some others uh i i think you're right that we do uh i think a lot of that comes from the legacy of having jeremy grantham as a founder um because of people who think about the world in a very disciplined data-driven way he is an absolutely extraordinary storyteller and i can remember you know it was the first client conference we had after I joined. So this was the fall of 1992. And it was the first time I had ever really gotten to see Jeremy present, because uh, I had been back in the corner, you know, doing research on currencies or what have you, and they didn't let me speak to clients or anything, right? I was a 21-year-old who knew nothing. But I got to sit there in the client conference. And um, uh, he gave this presentation. And Somewhere in the middle of the presentation, he just stopped speaking and he looked around and he said, I've completely forgotten what I was talking about. Can somebody remind me? And one of the clients piped up and said, oh, yes, you were talking about, I don't know, let's say, you know, the return to high quality stocks in the US. It's like, oh, yes. And then he continued and he kind of explained it all. And I, I found it utterly uh, eye-opening first it was the best speech I had ever seen a human being give, despite the fact that in the middle of it, right, <laughs> the worst thing that could happen to a speaker happened. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the thing that Jeremy was able to do in that I know I, in turn, have tried, I don't claim to be the speaker that Jeremy is, but I've tried to learn, is... Take people through the journey that you took to get the understanding. Um, And human beings learn through stories. And so you're not going to convince anybody by throwing up a linear regression and say, see, look, look at what the beta is. Isn't that cool? Look at that R squared. And they shouldn't. Because a regression on its face is just, you know, you know, it's as likely to be a statistical artifact as anything else. Um, but what you need to do, both to have confidence in it yourself and to allow your client to have confidence, is to take them through, here is the underlying economic logic which caused us to do this. Here is the result that caused us to believe, oh, yes, we are right. We understand something about the world. And here's the reasonable conclusions you can you can uh, derive from that. Um, and I think that, you know, it, it's not always the most 
polished thing out there, but it really resonates with people because it helps them take the journey you took uh, to come to the conclusions you did. That's really interesting. Mean reversion is a very powerful concept in finance, and you will correct me if I'm wrong, but it's very uh, important for GMO's process as well. I want to ask you, is mean reversion broken? So mean reversion is powerful. It's also a shorthand. So asset asset prices or asset valuations have no obligation to revert to some particular level, whether an average over some period of time or or what have you. But what really does have to happen um, is if you are going to get a certain return from assets in the long run, those assets need to be priced at a level which is consistent with earning that return. And if it's going to earn that return, that asset has to be pricing through, has to be going through that level of valuation periodically, or it's not going to happen. If equities are going to give you 5% real, they need to be priced to deliver 5% real. And so what needs to revert is valuations to a level where earning that 5% real from sustainable uh, sources is doable. Um, now, it could be the case that. I don't know, 60 years ago, equities needed to deliver 6% real or 7% real, and now they only need to deliver 4.5% real. So they're not going to trade at the same valuations. But for, I don't think it is possible for mean reversion to be broken in the sense of returns from assets are not going to be driven in the end by the valuation that those assets are trading at. But to really understand what needs to revert and what doesn't, you you can't just look at prices. You can't even just look at sort of naive valuation measures. You need to dig in what are the underlying drivers of return for this asset, for this activity, and say, which of those drivers are going to be impacted and be different because of the valuations you are at today. And recognize, you can choose to say, I think that's going to revert. You can choose to say, I think that's going to stay where it is. But what you need to do is make sure your expected returns are consistent with where valuations are now. and a reasonable philosophical belief about where they could be sustained in the long run. Uh, so uh, that was a little bit theoretical. But when we looked at where growth stocks were priced as of late 2020 or early 2021, we thought they were priced to deliver in the long run a negative return above cash. Well, that's stupid. They can't possibly stay at those levels forever. So something had to change. But whether the market needs to trade at a level which is going to give you cash plus three or cash plus four, I don't know with certainty which those are going to be. But I can say cash plus minus one, that's not plausible. And so that thing has to revert. 
Is, is there a reason why you guys run that asset allocation portfolio forecast over a seven-year period? Why seven years? Well, we started doing it over 10 years, and we did it over 10 years uh, simply because 10 seemed like a nice round number. Jeremy then asked me to dig into a little deeper, uh, something around uh, 22 years ago or so, and just sort of answered the question, well, how long does it take assets on average to get back to fair value? And the answer was around seven. So seven seemed a reasonable result. Then when we dug in a little bit more deeply when revising our uh, forecast methodology another 10 years later, um, we found a little bit more nuance. So in looking, if you're modeling kind of assets as an AR1 process, you do indeed find that for equities, you tend to move one seventh of the way back to fair value in a given year. So that seven years is a nice shorthand for that. Um, but that isn't necessarily true for if you're looking at uh, small caps versus the market or value versus the market. Um, and so even though it's sort of under the seven-year brand, because for groups like stocks or bonds, seven years is about right, there is a little bit more nuance when we're looking at groups of stocks relative to the market, because where we see evidence that that mean reversion tends to happen faster, we will incorporate it. Um, so the seven years is actually at this point a little bit of an oversimplification, but it is still true. The best data we have is that the market tends to move one-seventh of the way back to normal in an average year. You once pointed out over the last couple of years that habit, habits once form are very difficult to break. And so <clears throat> value has had a very tough decade had a very tough decade, a little bit more than a decade, actually. How do you communicate to people that heuristics are very powerful and that sometimes the data is showing you that they need to move from one asset class to another or, or abandon the style that has worked in the past for one that feels more uncertain? Uh, so there's probably several questions in there, uh, and I'm probably not going to be able to do justice to all of them. The first thing is to recognize that as a valuation-driven investor, it cannot possibly be the case that you will always want to buy traditional value stocks. So I actually wrote a piece uh, back, oh God, uh, I don't remember. It was either 2005 or 2006 called The Trouble with Value. And the point I was making uh, after this extraordinary run value had been on since 2000 was that value stocks were trading at a much smaller discount than normal to the market and that this was a problem uh, and that value deserved to underperform. Um, so the first thing I think you need to do in order to be intellectually honest is to make sure that the conditions that caused you to like this thing, whatever it is, still persist. In 2000, value stocks were trading an extraordinary discount for the market. It was the opportunity of a lifetime. Um, but by 2005, they were a lousy investment. So 
that's not directly about heuristics. That's about having the discipline to be making sure you understand where the returns have come from for the asset you own, where to expect those returns to be coming from going forward, and whether that asset, whether value stocks or the S&P or anything else, is priced to deliver what you need from it. The issue with heuristics is, right, heuristics are relatively simple algorithms for determining your behavior. And the thing I tend to like about heuristics under certain circumstances is the more complicated algorithms sometimes just give stupid answers. <laughs> um, and so trying to build a multi-asset portfolio from a, an absolute uh, kind of mean variance process does weird things. It, you know, if you tailor it so that if everything is priced normally, you're going to own 70% stocks, 30% bonds. If stocks are 5% more expensive than that, it's going to say, well, I should own less than 70% in, in stocks. I should own more bonds, despite the fact that stocks still have a higher expected return than bonds. So you are voluntarily saying, I want to run a portfolio that is going to underperform my benchmark. And it's like, well, why? Why would I want to do that? Now, if you instead ran it for tracking error, what you'd find is that mean variance optimization would say, oh, as long as the expected return to stocks is greater than bonds, I'm going to be overweight stocks. Well, that's stupid, too, because then the 70-30 wasn't a reasonable benchmark to measure you against. So the nice thing about a heuristic is if a more full, uh, you know, a, a a broader quantitative process is going to be giving you stupid answers. There is still a huge benefit to the discipline of having a standard thing to be doing. When X happens, I expect to do Y. Because without that, what we find behaviorally is, man, there is a tendency to say, Ooh, well, whatever I have been doing has been working. Let's keep doing that. Or whatever I have been doing hasn't been working. Please, God, let me come up with an excuse not to. And the heuristic that helps you say, oh, you know what? If this thing has been doing too well, my bias should be sell it and do something else. You don't necessarily have to follow that. And one of the nice things about heuristics is you know they're an oversimplification, so you don't have to. But it pushes you in that direction, and it pushes you against doing what emotionally will feel easiest, which is keeping going with anything that's been working and abandoning anything that hasn't. I think at um, least leads me really well to my next question, which is going to be about and also thinking about what you were saying about the the value rally, particularly from dot com through to oh five oh six oh seven, was I think arguably you could say the rotation from sort of growth to value that that we think we're in at the moment sort of started around the the vaccine announcement in November twenty twenty. As ever with value, it's kind of gone in fits and starts. And I know that you put out a kind of note on the the, the kind of six six worst months, I think, or six of the 10 worst months in all value rallies, you know, have come in those, you know, two of the greatest kind of rally, rallies that we've seen since the 70s. So I think in terms of what the data is telling us today, though, are we in a, are we at 2002? Or are we closer than 
2000 to 2005 in terms of uh yeah how far into this into this value rally we are and how much further there might be to go yeah um so I don't think we're particularly close to 2005. In a very simple way of measuring things, in 2005, value stocks were trading at a 20% premium to their long-run average relationship to growth stocks. Today, value stocks are trading at about 75% of their long-run valuation relative to growth stocks. So if things were going to mean revert, in 2005, we had a problem because value stocks were overpriced to the tune of 20%. Today, they are underpriced to the tune of 33 So on a pure valuation perspective, we don't look anything like 2005. Um, now, under the surface, things are a little bit more complicated because one of the things we find, and this is more true in the U.S. than it is elsewhere, that that sort of simple analysis just breaks the market into two halves. And if you look under the surface, there's more going on in the U.S. than just those halves. And in particular, within value, the of that cheap half of the market, the the cheapest 20% of the market is trading really at a huge discount to its normal valuation. And that next 30%, the rest of value, is actually trading expensive versus its history. Hmm. So in the US, overall value looks pretty good, but in fact, it's only this tail that is worth investing in. The rest of value, eh, this doesn't look very very attractive. Um, but overall, value is trading at uh, something like, you know, through uh, a few days ago, maybe the 10th percentile versus its history, again, at that 25% that discount to its normal discount. So it's trading a lot wider. Um, and one of the things people do not seem to understand about value and value investing is it's not just about mean reversion. The, the charm of value trading at a bigger discount than normal is not simply, well, it's going to come back up and trade at a smaller discount. It is that rebalancing within value is going to be so much more powerful when value is trading at a big discount. And that rebalancing effect is something people just do not understand. And as a result, they just don't actually quite get what value investors are doing. Uh, if you think about value investing, what people will say is, well, value stocks undergrow the market, so you get less growth and you get more income. And that is absolutely true. The problem is value stocks undergrow the market by like five, and they out-income the market by like one and a half. And minus five plus one and a half yeah. Well, that gives you a negative number. So that would say value should underperform forever. And it hasn't. And the reason why it hasn't is because value is not a static strategy. Every year you come back and you look at the stocks you bought at the beginning of the year, some of them no longer look like value stocks. Um, on occasion, that may be because they've gone bankrupt, <laughs> but bankruptcy is actually a pretty small issue. What's a much bigger thing is some of them now look like growth stocks. And the bigger the discount value stocks are trading relative to growth stocks, the more pleasure there is 
in having one of your value stocks turn into a growth stock. And so the size of that rebalancing effect is very sensitive to the size of that discount. Right now, we've got a big discount. And on the flip side, this is the big problem for growth stocks still today. Yeah. The problem with growth stocks is a disappointing growth stock is going to be really painful when those growth stocks are trading at a big premium. Because, man, if they disappoint and people say, oh, this isn't a growth stock anymore, that is a huge fall. If we were instead trading at 2005 or even 2014 levels of spread and the growth stocks weren't trading that expensive relative to the market, it doesn't hurt that much. So a wide spread is really important, and it's really important even if you didn't believe in mean reversion. Is there anything particularly interesting about that cheapest quintile today that is uh, in terms of its composition versus its history? So we have been agonizing over that, right? We've got a group of stocks that looks optically really quite cheap. The question is, well, is it really cheap for a reason? On an individual stock basis, it is and it always is, right? In order for a stock to get to look really cheap, something bad has happened. So you look across the names in the portfolio and it's like, oh, yeah. I understand why the market doesn't like Meta. I understand why the market doesn't like Intel. I understand why the market doesn't like JP Morgan. All of these stocks, yeah, they're cheap because somebody hates them and they have a reason for doing that. But if we look across them, you know, questions we ask, well, is this a particularly low quality group? No. Is it low quality relative to its history? No. Is it excessively cyclical? Is there a lot of industry concentration? And if we adjust for that industry concentration, does that cheapness disappear? We don't see anything. Now, this thing that is a little bit tricky, and this is, a, this is somewhat trickier in thinking about deep value than it is for value, but is a problem in thinking about value as well. People want to say, hey, value stocks have this characteristic. Value stocks are cyclical. Value stocks are low quality. Value stocks are this. Value stocks are that. And at times, they are. Right. If you looked at value stocks in the winter of 2009, that was a low quality group of companies. Now, if you look at the performance of value stocks during the course of 2008, one of the tricky questions is, what are you going to do with the financials? Because the financials look pretty cheap and they did very badly. But for the moment, I'm going to pull out the financials and look at the rest of value and say, well, value underperformed a little bit, but not that much. But the stocks that are in value as of February 2009, those stocks had been destroyed. So the basic issue is value as of February 2008 was quite a different group of stocks with quite different characteristics than it was in February of 2009. And in February 2008, when we were about to enter or had just entered kind of the worst uh, economic and financial crisis since the Great Depression, the value stocks weren't particularly cyclical, they weren't particularly low quality, and they performed uh, as as they should have. By 2009, that portfolio had turned over and the stuff you had added looked quite different. Um, so one thing it is important to recognize about value is it doesn't tend to have permanent characteristics. It has some semi-permanent biases, 
but the intensity of those biases really changes. And I, you know, one of the questions a lot of clients ask us today is, well, how vulnerable is value in a recession? And what I can say is if I look at the group of stocks that are value now, they don't look particularly cyclically vulnerable. If I look at the long-run performance of value in recessions, sometimes it wins, sometimes it loses. But if I look at value at the end of recessions, it's always a group of stocks that did poorly in the recession. Um, and that's normally worked out pretty well because those are the stocks that get the best bounce as the economy returns. Would you say that the issue with Silicon Valley Bank and Credit Suisse has given a black eye to the value camp going forward? Well, Lord knows it didn't do anything for value uh, this month. <laughs> um, how long this lasts, I don't know. You know, Silicon Valley Bank, although somewhere on its way to zero, it must have flashed as looking cheap. It's not like it looked cheap most of the time. Mm. It, and it is amazing, right? It, it suffered from an absolutely classic bank run of the kind that we had lots of before the existence of the Federal Reserve, and we mm. haven't seen in a long time. But hey, banking is banking. I think there has been a certain amount of throwing out babies with bathwater uh, with value here. Um, I think if you look at the value stocks, in particular the deep value stocks, they're not hugely vulnerable in the event of a credit crunch because uh, they don't need a ton of financing. Now, you do tend to be overweight financials in value. You don't have to allow yourself to be. But when we look at the financials today, we see a bunch of financials that really do look pretty cheap. And we think it makes sense to own some. We also think it makes sense to recognize financials are a slightly tricky group because they are one kind of stock where looking really cheap can be a problem, right? The reason why, forget about Silicon Valley Bank, the reason why Credit Suisse had to die is because it was trading at a valuation level such that it could not raise the capital it needed, mm. right? If you were trading at a big discount to book value, you just can't survive if you've got a capital hole. Um, and that is very different from an industrial. So financials are a little bit tricky, um, and they are subject to periodic crises. Personally, I don't think it looks like we deserve to have a financial crisis of a 2008 type variety, but I wouldn't want to have a portfolio that was entirely financials today. I don't think I would ever want to have a portfolio that was entirely financials. And people just assume, oh, well, banks are in banks are in value, banks are doing badly. I need to sell all of value, and that's kind of weird. Uh, but you know, the same you you talked about behavioral stuff in the market and the problem of behavioral stuff. The flip side is the only way the market gets inappropriately priced, which is the only thing that creates opportunities to add value, is somebody doing something irrational. So, yeah, it's a pain in the butt for near-term performance to have value stocks that you don't think deserve to go down go down. On the other hand, they're cheaper than they were. Yeah. Uh, and that's pretty cool. 
It's, it's really reassuring to hear that the that cheapest quintile that there is some decent quality in there, and it's not as cyclical as I think people assume. I think a lot of people find that surprising. I think because of the the narrative and the muscle memory back to 09. and it's amazing. I think personally how long that has that sort of lingered in investors investors minds um yeah and it's not even fair if you look back to 09 because yes value was really junky in 09 but it wasn't in 08 yeah yeah so yeah. um <laughs> and being junky in 09 was a good thing yeah. <laughs> junk had a hell of a run yeah. <laughs> uh, unfortunately the banks had a really nasty dilution event but there are times where it makes sense to own junky stuff. Now, I will say our value models, right, the, the models that I am using to pick that cheapest 20% are willing to pay up for quality. So a thing we are always interested in looking at is what are the stability of the cash flows from this company? The more stable they are, the higher valuation we're prepared to pay. So in order for a junky company to look really cheap to us, it needs to be trading at a substantially lower valuation than one that is high quality. Everyone, everyone's heard of value traps. Uh, not that many people have heard of growth traps. Value managers always get asked about value traps. I would bet that growth managers almost never get asked about their, their, their growth traps. I know that yourself and GMO have, have written a, a brilliant paper kind of on this, why they're so dangerous for investors. And um, for those volunteers that aren't familiar with the paper, um, yeah, I was wondering if you could just kind of elaborate kind of on that, yeah, on, on what you wrote and, and, and why, why they're so dangerous for investors. Yeah. Um, so in order to do that, the first thing we needed to do was come up with a reasonable, simple definition of a value trap. So what we said was a value trap is a company that looked cheap at the start of the year, improved to be substantially less cheap than it looked because the underlying fundamentals wound up being substantially worse than anybody expected. So basically, a value trap is a value stock that disappointed. Yeah. Uh, and I think part of the problem for value managers is that value stock, which looked cheap and then disappointed, underperformed along the way, may still look cheap. So it's still in your portfolio, having underperformed, having disappointed. Uh, and I think the basic reason why value managers get crap over it is because they're still there in the portfolio. So we did a couple of things. One is we looked at value traps. We defined them as those value stocks that disappointed in the given year and asked the question, well, what percentage of value stocks disappoint in a given year? And how likely are they to disappoint in the next year? And what we found was round numbers, 30% of all value stocks disappoint in a given year and are therefore value traps. In the next year, they have a 30% chance of disappointing again. So what that says is there is zero serial correlation in value trapness. At any given point in time, 9% of the value universe will have disappointed two years in a row. Um, but it is not the case that having been a value trap, this is now a toxic company. But the other cool thing we were able to do, having come up with that definition, is said, all right, well, we can look at the growth universe for companies that have that same characteristic. So we just defined a growth trap as a growth company that disappointed investors over the course of 12 months. And because of the games over earnings, 
the way we chose to do that, which isn't the only way you could do it, is we wanted to see a company uh, either in value or growth that underperformed on revenues, because companies tend to cheat less on the revenue side of things, and saw expectations for future revenues come down. So this wasn't just some one-time thing, but an expectation for the future. And what we found is, on average, if 30% of value stocks disappointed and were value stocks value traps in a given year, maybe 33% of growth stocks were. So growth traps were a little bit more prevalent than value traps. But the bigger issue was value traps underperform the value universe. It is painful. It is reasonable that investors ask about those value traps because, man, if you could avoid them, that would be awesome. They underperform the value universe on average by about nine points a year. So if you could avoid that 30% of your universe, which underperforms by nine, man. That's 300 basis points of outperformance. That that would be great. The the growth traps underperformed the growth universe by about 13.5%. So they underperform by more, and they are more prevalent. So why don't growth managers always get hit with the question of, what do you do about growth traps? I think it's because if you're a growth manager, and you're truly a growth manager, and your growth stock disappointed and no longer feels like a growth stock, it's not going to be in your portfolio anymore. Hmm. right? The growth manager who owned Meta in 2020 because you thought it was a big grower, well, by 2022, when they had just disappointed two years in a row, you don't own them anymore. Uh, so because they're not in the portfolio, there isn't that much of a tendency, oh, well, tell me about this thing in your portfolio. Uh, and the things in a growth portfolio will tend to have done well, right? Because they're still there. They still look like growth stocks. Um, so I'm, now I'm not a growth manager, but I do think people first underestimate the pain of having been wrong with growth stocks. And that rebalancing effect is really negative for growth and people don't get it. And as a result, they get what growth investing is really wrong. But I think they are too obsessed with value traps for value managers. And I think the reason why is because the stocks tend to stay in the portfolio. And there's nothing more frustrating than you were wrong in this stock last year. What makes you think you're going to be right this year? And if they come up and they say, oh, but look how cheap it looks now. And I don't think it's going to disappoint. And then it disappoints again. You know, you just want to strangle them. And that will be true on average of 9% of their portfolio. It will be true on average of 0% of the growth stock manager's portfolio, but only because they already sold them. Yeah. <laughs> Not because they didn't cause damage in the portfolio along the way. When cycles tend to be or can be very long. And so we wanted to ask you, you mentioned at the beginning the importance of communicating to your client base through the research. That's a, a very important way of making them understand what GMO is doing and the way that you're investing and, and the importance of looking at the world from, from a certain perspective. So we, we were wondering what tools, behavioral or otherwise, do you use internally with the team and with clients so that they are keeping their eye on the long term and don't allow the noise of short-term underperformance to have an impact on, on the team or your client base? 
Well, man, if I knew how to do that really well, um, uh, it, life would be a lot easier. Um, it, because it's not even as simple as, you know, what we try to do is any client who is hiring us, you know, we'll talk to them and we'll say, hey, look at our history. We are capable of looking stupid for extended periods of time because you know, in order to get a great opportunity, what you need is a good opportunity that moves against you to become a better opportunity that moves against you to become a great opportunity. You have invested with us because we have done a good job handling those great opportunities. There is pain getting there, and that pain can go for a long time. So one thing is make sure the client's getting in, know what they're getting in for. But the reason why even that isn't enough is great. You have that understanding with the CIO who hired you. That CIO has a limited expected span in that seat. That CIO is going to be replaced. That CIO has an investment committee who is going to be replaced over time. And even if you have done a great job with that investment committee and with that CIO, you have to continue to do that again and again because their memories are fallible. You are not the only thing they have been worrying about. Um, but there's turnover in their investment staff. There's turnover on their investment committee. And I don't know, uh, honestly, how to be true to a, a style that is subject to periodically having the cycle move against you for a long time. Without running a very substantial risk of getting fired at a bad time by investors, um, even if you have done a wonderful job of communicating with them. But what I will say is if you have not done a good job of communicating with them and the only reason why they hired you was they liked that past track record, as soon as your track record doesn't look like that, you are at risk. Uh, so you've got to communicate. you got to be clear. You have got to be convincing. Uh, but even then, it isn't easy. Ben, we're coming to the end of our session, and we wanted to ask you, what book recommendations would you give us and our listeners? What have you been reading lately or some of your all-time favorites? Well... I guess th this is sort of uh, shilling for former colleagues and friends, um, but I think a couple of the best books that have been written uh, in the last few years about investing and how to think about investing, one of them is by a former colleague of mine, Edward Chancellor. Uh, it's called The Price of Time. Uh, and among other things, it is this extraordinary history of credit and what credit has meant and the various ways it has created problems um, over time. Uh, and, it, you know, given that I worked with the guy uh, for close to a decade and had read everything he had written, uh, it was amazing how much I learned in reading that. And uh, another, uh, another piece that I thought was incredibly valuable to read was uh, The Delusion of Crowds uh, by Bill Bernstein. Um, it's kind of a, an updating of McKay's original work. And the, the subtitle is Why People Go Mad in Groups. Uh, and it just points out 
not just on a financial basis, but in religion and politics, the ways groups of people can do utterly insane things. It is, on the one hand, kind of horrifying uh, as, as one thinks about the risks we run as humanity. But when you are trying to face the problem of, oh, my God, the market seems to be doing something crazy right now, how do I come to grips with that? It is very helpful to understand, well, that is part of the nature of human experience. And here is 500 pages of the last 150 times the world has done that. That's fantastic. Ben Inker, thank you very much for coming to the Value Perspective podcast. Best of luck with uh, moving to the new office and uh, have a nice trip coming to London to the London Value Conference in May. All right. Thanks very much for having me. <laughs>